Oh, hey, welcome back to Here's What I Can Say, your new favorite free online medical education podcast. This is Dr. Greg. Just a reminder that I'm, I'm not here to give medical advice and I'm not your doctor. So a quick update. Um, last week we talked about remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, and some other proposed treatments, an update on remdesivir. Uh, I know the NIH has published some preliminary data that looks promising on its use. There was also a trial recently published in The Lancet, uh, which is a huge journal in Europe. Um, they It was a trial based in China. They took about 237 people. I think 79 were in the placebo arm of the trial. Um, all of them were confirmed COVID-19 patients with the um, PCR test that I'll talk about in a sec. Um, and it looked like, unfortunately, that by the end of the study, there were no real differences that were statistically significant, um, showing that it was helpful for improving recovery time, decreasing severity of symptoms, decreasing duration of symptoms. Um, so this one trial um, was looking like a negative trial. Um, we'll see. It's possible that this bigger study might be able to give us a clearer answer. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I believe last time that there's the Discover a trial that's looking at a handful of different treatments, um, multi-center, tons of potential patients. Um, just anecdotally, I'd heard that they're having some difficulty enrolling patients in some of the treatment arms that aren't hydroxychloroquine. Um, for whatever reason, the um, general public seems, or some people in the public enough so, um, seem fairly convinced that there's something significant about hydroxychloroquine and that they're now refusing other treatments um, because they would rather get the thing that they heard worked, um, which I guess is one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> okay, so um, so there's still there's still an opportunity to see something good happen with, with remdesivir. I know they're also proposing some other antivirals um, that... Who knows? I, we generally have a hard time treating a lot of viral infections. Um, hep C um, and HIV are two that we've improved upon. Flu, we have um, Oseltamivir, or also known as Tamiflu. That's a helpful treatment. It can decrease the duration duration of, of symptoms and also... Uh, can be helpful in preventing a significant infection. So like if you're around somebody who has flu, you're, um, you can take it as a sort of prophylactic to prevent you getting it or getting a severe flu infection. Um, but there, these are a handful of examples, but there are so many other situations where we've tried um, a lot of things that have um, biological plausibility and that they could work in stopping the virus or helping us um, treat a viral infection that seem to be doing very little um, once you're actually doing the clinical trials. So there's, I guess, a renewed energy and financial 
incentive to get something working. Um, but we'll we'll keep an eye out for for what the NIH study says and what the Discover trial um, ends up saying about it. Um, but I get the feeling that in this kind of sort of desperation, people might just push for something that looks even remotely positive. Um, but let's try to be diligent about it. Um, so next topic I wanted to talk about was the diagnostics involving COVID-19. There's been some sort of confusing information um, presented out there. So what we uh, let's try to break it down. So the in-hospital tests that we use to diagnose a COVID infection um, is a what's called a PCR test. So we take the a nasal or nasal pharyngeal swab, so in the back of your nose, kind of at that angle where the space called the pharynx starts um, and the nose stops. Um, they take a swab of that tissue um, and then they test it for viral particles um, consistent with COVID-19. Um, I've been trying to suss out the quality of the diagnostics of, of that um, test um, that I'll, we'll talk about in a second. But the, um, it's, it's really hard to find um, good data to suss out the, um, the quality of these tests. However, um, they, fitting the sort of general clinical picture, they seem generally pretty good overall. So the data notwithstanding seems to be supportive of the use of it. Um, I think what I did find is that a lot of the times they were looking, uh, the, the data reported um, as of now actually looks fairly good that the PCR test is, is reliable. Um, the other test, though, that people are doing is the what we call an antibody test. So this is to test your body's production of an antibody to COVID-19-specific things. So the antibody test can look for um, two different types of antibodies that your body makes. There's the IgM and the IgG. Now, um, IgM is significant as it's the first. Once your immune system comes across something foreign, um, you're, you start to produce IgM that is targeted to identify that specific foreign particle. Um, after several days, your body begins to switch from IgM to IgG, and as, the, as it's switching over to IgG or producing more IgG, you, your, your immune system is trying to narrow the or, or make it more um, accurate and specific to the one target. So it becomes more precise and active. And what the antibodies do is once they once they bind to the target, they allow the other parts of the immune system to get activated. So it's a helpful, um, or it's a way to sort of guide the immune system to um, attack, if necessary, whatever um, uh, bacteria, virus, whatever kind of um, thing gets introduced into the body. So. So if you test for IgM, that tells you, and you, and you have the IgM in your body that, that, that says that within the last few days, um, 
you've been exposed and your body has had some time to start to produce antibodies. Um, and then once you, if you're producing IgG and IgM at significant enough qualities, that means you're starting to switch. So it takes about a week or so, depending on the person, um, to switch over. Some people say it only takes a few days to, to start to produce um, significant amounts of IgG. Either way, um, this the presence of these antibodies really only specifically says that kind of timeline, and then it also says whether or not you had been exposed at all. It doesn't say anything about active infection. It doesn't say anything necessarily about immunity. Um, it's unclear still that reinfection is possible. So if you get the, the antibody test, doesn't seem to have very much value as of now, um, but it has the potential of having value. So if you get tested and you have the IgG, um, and it turns out that you can't get reinfected, then you're in a good situation, uh, relatively speaking. Um, but then it's it's still difficult to say, uh, yeah, what that value really truly is at this point. Um, and then back to the other, so the PCR test, this is going to be the, the test that actually says, is this infection in your system? Is this virus in your system right now? So the way we look at these types of tests in general, or any kind of diagnostic tests, there's a lot of pieces, um, that we look at to evaluate the quality of the test. Two, two things that we talk about the most um, that you'll hear used in um, on the news and medical journals um, are the terms sensitivity and specificity. Um, so we would, you take all of the information you have about the people who have the disease and then people who don't have the disease, and then you say who here had a positive test and who here had a negative test. So you, you get all your true positives, true negatives. So those are people, true positives, people with disease who test positive, and then true negatives, people without the disease who test negative. And then you have the false positives and false negatives. Those are your, your four major data points that then you can kind of make comparisons to. So what sensitivity actually means is you're looking at the relativity of true positives divided by the combination of true positives to false negatives. So what this ends up telling you is how good is this thing at picking up on who's who's got the illness and how good is it at, at not giving you false negatives. So a good true positive test is going to be helpful for screening because it's like a a sensitivity. Um, you could think of something that's really sensitive is going to be picking up everybody who's sick in the room. And it might accidentally pick up a couple people who aren't sick, but it's never gonna miss the people who are truly sick. That's the, the, sensi the, the highly sensitive test. Um, but because you wanna, you want to try to get or suss out the people who tested positive but didn't actually um, have the test. So the way that you or have the illness, so you you use the the other fraction or the other term of specificity. So specificity is all of your true negatives 
divided by the combination of true negatives and false positives. So what this gives you then is the ability to say, is this good at missing, or the, does the test miss um, anybody who has the disease but didn't test positive for it? Um, so you, you use this test to essentially say, if this test is positive, it means you definitely have the thing that we're testing for. And if it's negative, you definitely don't. Which sounds a little bit confusing, but if, you, if you're trying to make it as simple as possible, a, these highly sensitive tests is going to maybe give you some extra false negatives uh, or false positives. So one way that we, an example would be the way we test for HIV. So the run-of-the-mill HIV test that people get is a highly sensitive test. So you might accidentally get a false positive, but it's not going to miss anyone who doesn't have it, or at least the fraction of people who test negative are of, of who actually do have HIV is very low. Um, but then the next test that you want to do is going to be something more specific, something more specific that will say, if this test is negative, this person does not have the disease. So the second test that you get to test for HIV, if you test positive on the, the sensitive test, is going to be a more specific test that's going to essentially be the... Um, the, the helpful determining factor to say whether or not you really have this illness. Um, the other part about diagnosing that is missed often in discussion, even amongst clinicians that I've seen, is the um, sort of clinical judgment or clinical reasoning behind diagnosing somebody. So a lot of debate about the um, presumed diagnoses that weren't confirmed with the PCR test. And um, people seem to far, falsely misunder or falsely represent what this means. Um, we often have to make diagnoses without the specific tests, um, the tests uh, that we would get if we could. And we know for a fact that the availability of tests has been an issue. It's been talked about in the news a lot. So having a shortage of being able to test... Um, is going to mean, okay, well, you need to try to do your best to use your judgment based on the clinical picture of the, the patient presents with. So somebody who, say we have four people come into the hospital, two of them, are you only have two tests, but you have four people who come in symptomatic. They were in the same room at the same time as one other person who came in before who definitely had coronavirus infection. So these four people come in, they're both, they're all four symptomatic. They all have the same problem. Uh, they have the, you know, the dry cough and fever and some of the classic coronavirus symptoms. And then, um, but you only can test two of them with the specific PCR test. Now, does that mean only two of those four people have the virus because you could only test them or... Do you take the clinical judgment and say, I'm going to test at least two of these people because I have them, but I'm going to, have, I'm going to say most likely because of the, the clinical picture that from their history, their symptoms, and um, their exposure, all of those things combined, 
It's going to lead me to believe that I have four people who are sick with the illness, even though I can only get two positive tests. The rest of the sort of politics of that, I don't really care to get into, mostly because it's uh, it's all just it's political. It's not scientific. Um, but the when you're questioning what do these presumed positives mean, that's what it that's that's what they're talking about. It's your you're taking what's most likely going on. So if somebody comes into the hospital and they've got a fever, they've got the cough. You're gonna sort of presume that they might have this, and then you're gonna do everything you can to sort of prove or disprove that that's the illness. That's kind of the process we do for any illness. Um, if you have the best tests possible to confirm, um, great, but not everybody's going to have access to them. Um, somebody in a rural clinic in the middle of New Mexico might not have access to all of the tests to confirm specifically, um, but you can take whatever information that you do have and create a pretty convincing argument. Um, so that's the sort of clinical uh, judgment piece. The last thing I want to talk about today is um, kind of a little bit of the sort of public health element. I know that people have been seeing a lot of discussions about the case fatality rate, um, or some people just kind of talking about how deadly the illness is. The case fatality rate is really just like the percent of of, of mortality related to the infection. And the reason why this number changes so much is partially because for what I was just talking about is how, how do we know this person has that thing that killed them, uh, that we think that killed them, um, then how many people are, are not dying from it, etc. And so depending on your ability to confirm the diagnosis um, and then submit that information to, to public health authorities so they can look at this data, um, you're going to have a harder time trying to figure out what, that inf- what, what the fatality rate is. And then you look at, well, some places don't have as good supportive measures or a supportive staff to help patients recover from the infection. So they're going to have a higher case fatality rate than some other places do, you know, places that are with ventilator shortages and things like that. And so they're going to have higher fatality rates. And so the numbers are really inconsistent, and, and it's really only when you retrospectively look at all of that information is when you can, when you have all of the actual information, you can then look back and say, the, the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 um, has resolved, and now we can look back and, and get as much accurate data as possible. It's still going to have presumed positives because that's that's the limitation of the test or the the number of tests available so that's that's just going to have to be there um but we'll at least have all of the information or as much of it as possible to give a more accurate um rate for the for the case fatality so something's kind of messing this up on top of the testing is i you know there's that video going around of the guy, the two guys from Bakersfield area who were talking about the their numbers related to, to COVID and how it's probably, they think it's not as deadly as everyone else is saying it. It might be, um, part of what is interesting about them is, is the result of coming out as a, as a rogue maverick doctor saying something revolutionary and the amount of attention and TV time those guys got from it. But also the um, the sort of mis- the way they misrepresent themselves and the information that they got. So they call their their data a, a trial, 
um, which really wasn't a trial. Um, it's just a bunch of information that they have. And then they also, um, they say, okay, so this is the, the number of people that we diagnosed um, with our tests and then the number of people that died, this is the accurate number. And they're coming away saying that, you know, 10% of, or 6%, or I can't recall exactly what number, but some number of, uh, at the case fatality rate that we have seen, um, is what's true everywhere. And it's, it's, which is a silly idea when you think about it, because what it implies is that means that every place is the same as that ER. So not just every hospital, but everywhere. Um, if you go into an ER, um, you'll see, say there's 10 patients in the ER. One of them has a stroke. Everyone else has physical injuries. You can say 10%, if I'm interpreting their data the way they did, I would, this, this would then mean that 10% of my ER has a stroke. That means 10% of the whole world has a stroke right now. And clearly, if you look at the data on stroke, it's not nearly that high. So they, they, they kind of misrepresent their data that way. And then they are also, they got a lot of tests available and this was publicly available information. And so a lot of people went to them to get tested. So a lot more people than normal were going out and getting tested. So, uh, so it's essentially like a self-inflated number in that regard. Um, but just the general caution is when you see somebody who comes out as a, as a rogue um, or a maverick type, um, they, their intentions are most likely good, but I, I have, you must take pause and think about what they're, they're saying and, and what the sort of discussion is. I mean, the, the, those YouTube videos keep getting taken down and some people would interpret that as, oh, they don't want the, the reality to be out there. Um, but it's most likely being taken down because it's irresponsible and inaccurate. Um, and I mean, the Association of Amer of Emergency Medicine in, in here in the United States has released uh, um, a press release kind of um, discussing the validity of, of what they had to say and, and sort of disconnecting themselves from, from those, those doctors. So, and, in, and I guess it's, it's compelling to see that response. Um, but you know, you have to take the whole picture. So just because one big association got mad at these guys and just because these guys said something against the green that maybe they were right, but in this situation, you evaluate all, all of that data better. And it turns out that they're they're kind of they're, they're misrepresenting intentionally or not um, their their data their information. Um, so I think that's that's a good place to stop. Um, I think we're what I want to try to do. I know I tried to get to having a second episode come out earlier in the week, but it turns out being a, a doctor is uh, time consuming and exhausting. So I apologize for the delay. I'm, I'm hoping to try this again, see if I can get another episode out in a few days from now. Um, I'd love to get some episodes where I um, am answering more specific questions that listeners might have. Um, the email address is open. It's here's what I can say at gmail.com. And then I also, you can um, find me on Twitter at here's what I can say.
Um, so just to recap, we talked a little bit about the remdesivir trial that just came out this week. We talked about antibodies, antigen, PCR, sensitivity, specificity, clinical judgment, case fatality rate, and some guys in Bakersfield. Um, next time, um, probably next Sunday, I will release an episode on vaccines and have a discussion about the concept of boosting your immune system. Um, and maybe if I get some good questions, we'll go, we'll go from there. Um, but this is a good place to stop, I think. Um, thanks for your time. And this is what I can say.